Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. We are in the middle, or we're not in the middle, we're on the tail end. We've got one more installment of a, uh, a series that we've been in on foundations. We're looking at the foundations of the faith. Hebrews chapter 6, uh, where the writer, whoever it was, uh, that's a debate, but uh, the, the, whoever wrote Hebrews, uh, he says, let us therefore leave the elementary teachings, not laying again the foundation. And then he lays out several compo- components of the foundation of the faith. Uh, repentance from dead works, faith in God, instruction in baptisms, plural, uh, the laying on of hands, which is what we did last week, uh, and then I, I was real tempted to get back into that this week because I feel like we just didn't hit that enough, but we'll, we'll probably delve back into that in the future. Uh, laying on of hands, and then we have the last two components, and we talked last week of these six components, the two are the beginning, the, other, the last two are the end, how our faith culminates, and the other two are that middle, that middle experiential element in our walk of baptisms and the laying on of hands. So the last two we're looking at this week, uh, the resurrection of the dead and the uh, eternal judgments. And so next week, God willing, we're gonna look at eternal judgment. But this week, we're looking at the resurrection of the dead. Now again, a number of these elements, when we look at this passage, it is intriguing because for a lot of us, we would look at these subjects and think, really? Like this is foundational? Now this one, the resurrection of the dead, that, that's a much more easy one to understand. I mean, if we didn't have the resurrection, we wouldn't be here, or at least, don't waste your time. Paul himself said, if there is no resurrection, we worship in vain. This whole thing's in vain. Uh, so the resurrection is foundational to the Christian life, but it's speaking of more than merely Jesus' resurrection of the dead. It almost seems heretical to say merely Jesus' resurrection from the dead. I don't want to discount that. That is the foundation of our faith. But there's a wider, a broader application to, than merely Jesus coming out of the tomb on that first Easter Sunday. There is an application. Uh, there, there are facets of the resurrection and there are progressive facets. The first of which, of course, was Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Scripture speaks of Jesus' resurrection in terminology like this. It's interesting that he is the first fruits of the resurrection. It also uh, regards him as the firstborn from among the dead. Those are very specific terms in the Old Testament. And they speak of some very specific things that God is wanting us to understand about Jesus' resurrection. So Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection. That idea of first fruits is the initial breaking of the harvest. We give that unto God as a first fruits. And Paul says in Romans chapter 11, I want, it's either verse 15 or 16, uh, it says that in giving him the first, it sanctifies the rest. It's an interesting phrase. That when we give him the first part, that goes to him. That's his. And we see this in the Old Testament, even in the conquering of the promised land. 
The first city they came to was Jericho, and they weren't supposed to touch any of the riches. They burn it to the ground. It was sanctified unto the Lord. And you remember the one guy took some, hid it in his tent, and a plague broke out because he took some of the first fruits. It was holy unto the Lord. You see this also with the firstborn child. The firstborn child was was uh, dedicated unto the Lord in a, in a special way. God, God, the firstborn was of God's. The firstborn livestock were sacrificed to the Lord, and the firstborn sons were redeemed from the Lord with an offering. And so we have this idea of firsts. Now, part of that has to do with the tithe. When we talk about tithing, and there's, there's been a lot of talk, even lately there's been, there was a well-known minister that came out online and said, burn every book I ever wrote on tithing. I repent, and tithing is not for today. Now, I respect the guy. I just disagree with him. Tithing is a kingdom principle. And it's not part of the law. It was in existence before the law. Matter of fact, uh, we don't have time to get into this too deep, but just understand, when we talk about the law, the law was part of the Levitical code, okay? So there was, there was the law, there was the priesthood connected to the law, and there was structure or protocol connected to that worship. And all of that is a package deal. So the Levitical priesthood oversaw the dissemination of the law, and they worshiped under a three-tiered system, the outer court, the inner court, and the holiest of all, okay? Then there's another priesthood. There's only two there's only two priesthoods. Yeah, I kind of confuse you there. There's, uh, there's only two priesthoods, or this, two priesthoods in the scripture. There is the Levitical priesthood, which in reality is the temporary priesthood of the law. It was established as an in-between place, as a nanny to lead us to Christ. But there's also an eternal priesthood. And that eternal priesthood bears the name of a strange guy that's hardly even mentioned in scripture. His name is Melchizedek. It's mentioned before the law. Abraham met Melchizedek, which it says was a priest of the most high God. He was also the king of a city called Salem, which eventually, by the way, would become the city of Jerusalem. Which Salem is shalom, it's peace. He was the king of peace. He was also a priest of the Most High God. Hebrew says he had no beginning or end in the sense that we don't know his history. Now, just as, as a side note here, there is a debate among preachers and scholars that some people think he was a pre-incarnate Christ. He was a theophany. They believe he was Jesus himself having no beginning or end. I don't believe that, but I see where they're coming from. They'll find out I was right when we get to heaven. There's the other one, the possibility is we don't know his lineage, but he was a physical man. The reason I believe he was a physical man, one of which is, Scripture says that a priest had to be chosen from men so that they could relate with those they interceded for. That's why Jesus became flesh to become our priest. But this was prior to him becoming flesh. He was not yet a man. So I believe Melchizedek was a real man, but he had, the, he, because he was the first of this line of priesthood, that priesthood bear, bore his name. It was a Melchizedek priesthood. That is the eternal priesthood, okay? Because 
there's only three passages in scripture that mention Melchizedek. We'll call him Mel for short, okay? Mel was mentioned in Genesis. He's mentioned again in uh, Psalm 110, where it says that Jesus, today you have become uh, my son, you are a priest in the order of Melchizedek. It's a, it's a messianic psalm, but it also applies to David. And then it, when it gets to the New Testament, it starts to talk in the book of Hebrews about Melchizedek and that Jesus was a priest in the order, quoting Psalm 10, he was a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Here's the thing. You and I are also priests. We're kings and priests. Just like Mel, he was a king priest. And you and I are kings and priests in the order, not of the Levitical order tied to the law, but in the, the Melchizedekian, yes, that's a word, I just invented it, Melchizedekian order, that's the eternal order. That's the eternal one. And there are eternal principles connected to this thing. And so people that say the tithe is connected to the law is, is not true because Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. Now, does that mean if you don't tithe, you're not going to heaven? No. It does mean that you're not going to experience some blessings on your way there, though. Because there is, these are, okay, are these obligations of the law? No. But we can't relegate it to the side saying, well, that's over, because it's part of the eternal. What this is, is a revelation of how the kingdom works. And you can cooperate with the kingdom or you can fail to do so. And in cooperating with the kingdom, we step into kingdom principles. We step into his reign in our life. It's not that it's earning you anything with God. It's not earning you into heaven. You can go to heaven without tithing. But it's part of bringing heaven to earth that we cooperate. And it's the way that God funds his ministry in the earth tithes and offerings. And so Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. He gave him a first fruits offering. Now one of the things we need to realize, and this does tie in with the resurrection because the same terminology is used of the tithe. It's the principle of both, the, it's the principle of the first, okay? So as a little excursion, God, I, I rarely preach on tithing, so I'm just gonna take my opportunity here. The, when we tithe, we are giving a tenth. That's literally what it means. So you're not tithing if you give 5%. You're not tithing if you give 3%. You may be giving an offering, but you're not giving a tithe. A tithe is 10% of your increase. And just as a side note, people will come to me and say, Pastor Dave, uh, I just sold my house. Do I tithe on the wholesale? This is my personal opinion, okay? What was the increase? Hey, and this right now, there's a lot of increase. Sell well, you can't. No, I'm just kidding. It, uh, there's, there's an increase. So you don't, you don't tithe on the wholesale if, if you want to. Everything above the increase is an offering. Hey, God bless you. God will bless you for it. But there's, you tithe on the increase. So uh, in 20 years ago, Kathy and I bought a home across town. Five years later, we sold it for 50 grand more than we bought it for. Woo! Hallelujah. And we tithed on the increase. So that was, a, that, was a, that was a blessing. That was an increase to our bank account. So we tithe on that. Here's the thing. It's not just a tenth. It's the first tenth. Because when you give it off the top, what you're doing is you're by faith saying, Lord, you get the cream off the top. The firstborn, the first thing that comes into my bank account, I'm giving it to you. And it's by faith because there's a tendency for us to think, well, I'll get to that. 
And sometimes there's not enough left to do everything you want. Anybody ever been there? And you don't want that to be God. You want him to be your first and not your last. You want to give to him. You give, you, you give that tithe. And so Paul is saying in Romans 11, he said, when you give of the first, you sanctify the rest. It's a fascinating thing. It's a way for me to release the blessing of God over my finances. Now, I know a crowd this size, living in this day and age, some of you are thinking, oh brother, here goes another preacher talking about money. This is a way he's going to promise the blessing of God and then, you know, so he'll give to the church. Hey, you know what? Here's the deal. I didn't write the Bible. I just preach it. This is a principle of God's word. And when we get to heaven and I have my big old mansion, because I've been sending stuff ahead, I don't want you to come and visit my place because you're living in a little tiny shack and saying, Pastor Dave, you failed to tell me. I'm just kidding. But not completely. Okay? Your heart is connected to your money. Scripture's very clear. So much so, I'm just going to camp out on this. I just feel the need to. Your heart is connected to your money so much so that Jesus said, if you are not faithful with the unrighteous mammon, who will give you true riches? This is the Son of God himself speaking. What he's saying is if you're not going to be faithful with biblical principles with your money, it, 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 what he's stating is that that is the entry exam in kingdom stewardship. If you can't steward that, then what are the true riches? If physical money isn't the true riches, he's juxtaposing it over against this, there's something more valuable than finance. And I, I would tell you there's a lot of things more valuable than finance. The true riches will not be delegated to you unless you prove it here. Why? Because your heart and your money are connected. Wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I can actually invest my way into a commitment. Now, gentlemen, every married man, tune your ear, every single man, write this down. You're going to need this in the future when you get married. When your heart, affection for your wife is not burning like it should, and it's showing up in your attitude and even your actions, one of the ways you can ignite that passion for your wife is to literally financially invest in that relationship because where your treasure is your heart will follow when you give of your money all of a sudden you value the thing that you invest in if you ever invest in stocks or you invest in precious metals whatever you find yourself suddenly caring what the state of that stock is oh I think I'll turn to the oh what's it doing today why because your treasure went there and your heart followed And you need to be careful with this. But the fact is, there are times where I have felt, you know what, I'm going to give something financially because I just feel like my passion isn't where it needs to be. That's between you and the Lord. But I'm telling you, it's, it's a, it is a methodology that I've used and it works. <laughs> because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your heart will follow your treasure. So what did, Jesus, what did God do? He gave us his best, his son, and he gave us the first 
born. He is the firstborn from among the dead. So the resurrection of Jesus is talked about in this kind of language. That he is the first. Matter of fact, it says that the firstborn is to be redeemed because he's the first one to open his mother's womb. There's something about that being that sanctified first fruit, the first one to come from the mother. It, he was the first one to open the mother's womb, and that is the first fruits of the woman, so that child needed to be redeemed from God. Jesus was the first one to open the tomb. He's the first fruits of resurrection. But there's other language also used that are connected to this idea of first fruits. We see the terminology of token and down payment used. Now a token is the same idea as a down payment, but it's not as readily relatable for you and I in this day and age. A token is something that is connected to what's coming. It's, it's, a, it's like a prophetic little promise. It's like a, a little act. It's like a, a little bread off what's coming. I, I remember hearing John Kilpatrick years ago. Some of us went over to a conference in, at IHOP, and John Kilpatrick was preaching on tokens. That man has some phenomenal stories. And he was talking about after World War II, there was a group of German Lutheran nuns. I didn't know Lutherans had nuns, but they do. German Lutheran nuns, and they had started these orphanages for children that had lost their parents during the war. And some of these kids had been through, as you can imagine, tremendous suffering and deprivation and it would come at night. They were tr trying to create this warm environment for these kids to be raised in. And they'd put them all to bed at night. And they'd go by and pray with each one. And, but in the night, they would wake up crying. And there was just this agitation. And so being wise nuns, they went to the Lord. And they said, Lord, what should we do? What do, what do you want us to do here? And the Lord spoke to them and said, what you need to do is take a loaf of bread. As you pray for each child, break off a piece of the loaf and stick it in their little hand and let them sleep with some bread in their hand. And so they would do that, and they'd kiss each other one, each on the forehead, put a little piece of bread in their hand, pray with the next one, and it solved those night terrors. None of them would wake up and cry. You know why? Because these little children had lived wondering if they would have enough to eat the next day. There was this lack of security and safety in their life. There was this upheaval. But now in the middle of the night when those little kids would wake up, they would think, am I going to eat tomorrow? And they'd smell that little bread. Oh, I've already got some. I got a token of what's to come. I've got enough to carry me through. And that became that token that settled their heart. Jesus' resurrection is the down payment and the token of things to come. Now, the whole idea of a down payment, a down payment is something that you pay that binds you to the full payment. If you've ever made a down payment and you want to back out of the deal, you usually forfeit your down payment. And so they make the down payment painful enough to keep you on the hook so that it's guaranteed. This down payment is not a commitment we make to God. It's a commitment he makes to us. Jesus is the down payment of our faith. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. He's the firstborn. 
All of that terminology speaks to this idea that he was the initial breakthrough with the fullness coming. And so Jesus was the first fruits. He was the foundation of our resurrection, but the culmination is experienced in every believer's life. So much so that it starts with Jesus as the first fruits, but it culminates with death being the final enemy defeated, Scripture says. It's the final one we will defeat. And in, in the process here, we experience resurrection power in a number of different ways. Sometimes it literally breaks in where people are raised from the dead or they're saved from death through healing or provision or whatever. But the ultimate, we, we have to live in this, this tension now as believers the already, Jesus is the first fruits. We've got, a, we've got a, a, a fist full of bread in our hand, but the not yet. We, we still suffer those things this side. We still suffer these battles, these trials that we're going through. I don't have a clock back there. This is kind of freaking me out here. Someone might need to wave when it starts getting towards noon. I'll get carried away. So we have this, we're living in the tension of the already and the not yet. And those realities are crucial for you and I to hold on to. This idea of the resurrection. I was just reading through some old notes again yesterday and came across this, this uh, something I was referring to, something Francis Schaeffer says in one of his books, and I thought it was so good. He was talking about there's a, main th- a major theme and a minor theme in scripture. There's a major theme and a minor thing to the gospel. He said, the minor theme is suffering, death, pain, deprivation, struggle. The major theme is resurrection, deliverance, victory, breakthrough. And you can look at whole movements that tend to camp out on one or the other to the negation of the other. He said it's important that we keep both of those in our theology, both of those in view. And I couldn't agree more. And I also agree with his next statement. He said, and it's important that we keep the main thing, the main thing, and the minor thing, the minor thing. We do need to acknowledge suffering. We do need to acknowledge the struggle, the battle. We do nobody any favors. If your theology has no explanation for suffering, if your theology doesn't take into consideration, we are still at war. The enemy is defeated, but there's still a battle. The defeat of the enemy is not that he's already locked up and that Jesus has conquered him. The, The defeat of the enemy is more like we're on the edge of the promised land like Joshua, and the Lord says, everywhere you place your foot is yours. Chapter one. Then the rest of the book is one bloody battle after another to secure actually what they've been given legally and spiritually. And that is our reality. And if your theology, if it's just this charismatic bravado, we have the victory, but you're not, you don't have any explanation for present suffering, number one, you're not gonna be able to help anybody that's in the middle of it. But number two, you are in danger of either being very ineffective or being offended with God when you experience what you don't acknowledge. 
And so we need to realize we live in this tension of the already and the not yet. The kingdom of God is broken in. The resurrection has already begun. We have the first fruits of our resurrection. We can look at the resurrected Christ and we've encountered him and that resurrection has encountered us and it's begun to work through our life. I, I met a young man here this morning that's on his pass from Teen Challenge. And he's, he was talking about it's been good. His mom's proud of him. She said, yeah, he's, he's been doing so good. And I thought, man, I'm proud of this young man. Because I, I tell you what, I'm more proud of my diploma from Teen Challenge than I am of my one from Bible school. Because the one from Teen Challenge was a lot harder to get. God broke in and delivered me as a young alcoholic and drug addict. The already has encountered me, and anybody who knew me knows, man, you're not the same guy. What is the deal? It's because I met the resurrection. But I'm telling you, there's still that, those battles in my life, and for me not to be real about that is to do everyone else a disservice. Because what I've got to do is I've got to take this resurrection that hit the shoreline of my life in 1983 and began that transformation. And I've got to come and I've got to impose that on these other areas of my life. And sometimes they don't give way. If you haven't yet, I want to encourage you, you need to look up the podcast, Bethel Redding and Bill Johnson's message last week. How many of you have heard it? Bill's wife died three days, late, three days prior to that. They have been praying. Benny's been struggling with cancer for well over a year. Now this is a place, there are so many testimonies worldwide of the craziest miracles happening in that place. I've been in meetings with Bill where, I mean, it is unreal, the anointing for healing on his life. Yet he buried his dad from cancer, the patriarch of that house, and now the matriarch of that house, Benny. And Bill talks about how we don't get to dictate to God the outcome. He said he's not a slot machine that I put in a quarter and get what I need. And he said this, and it just reminded me of a few episodes in my own life, and I'm sure many of you can relate with this. But he said this, he said, there are times where you don't get what you've been praying for, and you don't understand why, because you're standing on a promise from the scriptures. He said, but in those times, you have this rare opportunity to offer a sacrifice you may never get to offer again. You get to offer God worship in pain, to worship him in the mystery, and that is so rare because we will spend the rest of eternity worshiping him. We will be blown away by his glory. We'll spend, people that say, well, I don't know if I want to go to heaven. It sounds boring. It's because you don't know him for who he is yet. And when we see him, we will spend decades just on one facet of his character, blown away. And about the time we run out of worship for that one, he'll lift the veil on another one and we'll be like, oh, and we'll go down again. But what we won't be able to do is worship in pain there. We have that rare opportunity now. And that, that beautiful worship that comes out of saying, God, I don't understand but my mind doesn't have to understand because my heart already knows you're good. So the problem is not with you, it's with 
there's, there's a piece of this I don't know, but I'm going to worship you anyway. We offer up that worship. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. He has conquered death, but it's the ultimate death of death is the final enemy to be conquered. I'm not sure what that was. I want to tie it in prophetically, but I'm lo- I just don't have anything, okay? So it, uh, all right. It did make me go back to my notes, though. That freaked me out. All right, let me just read you a few things. Paul says, let, let's go to 1 Corinthians 15, 19. 1 Corinthians 15, 19. And I want to land this thing with a, a principle. I've got too many open books and I'm looking for my Bible. Okay. No, there's another one. Sorry, people. 1 Corinthians 15. Okay, listen to what Paul says here. Now I want to remind you, brothers, that the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, he was raised on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of them are still alive, though some of them have fallen asleep. I mean, Paul's making some pretty big claims here, but there were a whole lot of people that were willing to give my life, give their life for what they saw, okay? Then he appeared to more than 500. Most of them are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. And by the way, just let me say, the, the fact that he calls death merely falling asleep, in essence, he's saying they're taking a nap. The only reason he can refer to it in that terminology is because of the very thing we're talking about, the resurrection. Jesus kicked the end out of the grave, and it's a temporary irritation. I've got a little boy that went to be with the Lord when he was four years old. I personally believe he is now a strapping young 31-year-old man, and I can't wait to see him again. And I believe my boy's going to school me in some of the kingdom because he spent a long time up there learning a lot of things. And Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, he said, I want you to understand, we don't grieve like the rest of men. I can't bottom out in despair at the loss of my son because I know I'll see him again. That is going to be one reunion, I'm telling you. Hallelujah. In accordance with scriptures that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more, okay, verse seven, then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Wow. Wow. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's kind of Popeye thing. I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether it is then, it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as the raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? So Paul is dealing with this 
heresy that had entered the church is saying, no, there's not a resurrection of the dead. That's just, you know, we die and that's it. And Paul's saying, no, the resurrection of Jesus is the down payment that guarantees our resurrection. God put a heavy price as a down payment to guarantee that he would come through on the rest. And the rest is your and my resurrection. Death is a temporary irritation. And scripture says that when, when he comes, those who are in Christ will rise first. There's gonna be hole where my son's grave is because his body will literally raise back from the dead. How can some of you say there is no resurrection? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified that, about God that he raised Christ for whom, he did, whom he, he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. I, I, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. It's fascinating to me that Paul ties the resurrection to the overcoming of your sins. See, most of us, the, it was his death that overcame the sins. But Paul said, no, there was an element the resurrection played in the victory over sin that we must understand. Because the resurrection lifted the penalty. We'll get back to that. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if Christ, if we have no hope in this life, if we have hope only in this life, we of all people are to be the most pity. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as a man came, for as by a man death came death, by a man come also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. We'll just stop there. So Paul is saying, listen, this is foundational. This is, Hebrews says it's foundational. Paul's saying here, if we don't have this element of our faith, there is no faith. It is foundational. And what we need to realize is that the resurrection is literally embedded in the created order. If you look way at the beginning, what did, what did God say to Adam and Eve? He said, listen, don't eat of that fruit, for the soul that sins shall surely die. He gave them a warning of what they would unleash on human history. And of course they did. And sin entered the world and death through sin, Romans says. But yet there was already a hint of our deliverance in the warning. Because when Jesus began to talk about his death, Scripture says that he was crucified from the foundations of the earth. We didn't know that prior to his crucifixion. That revelation came to mankind afterwards. But the fact is, when Jesus began to talk about the necessity of his death, this is how he said it. He said, listen, unless a kernel of grain falls into the ground and dies... It abides alone. But if it dies, it will break open and it will bring forth much fruit. 
So the method by which you take the life in one kernel and have a whole field of kernels is that it has to fall into the ground, die, break open, and that breaking releases the life into the many. And Jesus used this law of the harvest as a picture, a parable, if you will, of how resurrection really works. Now here's the thing. What he said is that breaking open of the kernel is a form of death. And he was saying that this death is the very way in which life is released. So I want you to catch this this morning. This, this blows my mind. The goodness of God. That in the warning, when Adam and Eve, God created them in this beautiful paradise-like garden and said, you can eat anything you want. It's all here for your enjoyment except one thing. Don't touch this tree. And like little children, they were drawn to the forbidden fruit. They were enticed and deceived and they ate of it. What was the warning? If you eat of it, you shall surely die. And it was a warning. Make no mistake about it. It is responsible for the minor theme we th see throughout Scripture. Suffering, death, pain, degradation, all those, those things that we would never choose. That came in through death. But we need to understand that when God created the world, he, he, he created trees once. He created tomato plants one time. You don't pray in new tomato plants. If you want tomatoes, you don't lay on your face in, in the intercession. God, release tomatoes. Release tomatoes. God, we're praying. You go out to your backyard. It hasn't happened yet. God, you can pray all you want, but that's not the method. That's not the way that God intended for tomatoes to be produced. You cooperate with the laws of the harvest. You take a tomato, you get, extract the seed, you sow a portion of what has grown back into the ground to get a greater supply next year. Hallelujah. Jesus referred to that process. I hope you can catch this. I hope I can communicate it. Lord, help me. Jesus referred to that process as what? Death. It was part of his created order. That was part of creation before Adam and Eve sinned. And what Jesus was saying is, because he was crucified before the foundations of the world, the consequences of sin were unleashed. The negative consequences were unleashed through sin. And we suffered all this. But God, for eyes of faith, if they understood this, they, Jesus was already prophesying the way in which he would undo sin. He was going to release the life in him into the many through his death, burial, and resurrection. And it was already embedded in creation itself. You talk about foundational. It is part of the created order. We eat, we plant it, it comes up, and we live off of that. And it was part of God's creation, and it was the way that God was going to deliver man. That Jesus came, and he lived a righteous life. No man took it. No man took his life. Freely he gave it. He gave his life. He was crucified. And what the disciples were looking at is the ultimate defeat. 
I'm telling you, this is a pattern of the kingdom. What they were looking at as the ultimate defeat, Paul reinterprets after the fact as the secret wisdom of God. For had the principalities and powers understood, they would have never crucified the Lord of glory. They didn't understand that what they believed was their greatest victory was their ultimate defeat. Because what they did, it was, it was like you and I, we're a, we're a bunch of prisoners that got convicted. And the one principle, the prosecuting attorney, the accuser brought against us, the legal precedents that he used to leverage us and to, to sit on death row was this, the soul that sins shall surely die. And so what happened? See, this is why the resurrection is so important. Jesus died. He came under that sentence. And then there was an appeal to the Supreme Court of Heaven. And all of us in our prison cells are watching this case. <laughs> if he can beat this, we all go free. There's a precedent set. And God overturned the verdict of Rome and the Jewish people and everything. God resurrected him from the dead. That's why Paul says if he's not resurrected, we're still in our sins. We still live with the consequences of this thing. It was his resurrection he became the firstborn from among the dead. What does scripture say? In bringing many sons to glory, he was the firstborn among a great harvest of which you and I are a part. This thing is foundational, not just to our faith, but to life itself and to your life, how you live. It's what Christy was saying this morning. You've been through some hardship and you feel like you've been stepped on. God is going to redeem that. Laura's testimony of, of having had an abortion as a young girl in high school. Got herself into a situation and made a decision she regretted all those years. And what did Jesus do? He reached in and said, Laura, it's time for me to deal with this. You know, she shared publicly. John didn't even know. And the, she, God began to deal with this because she was living in shame. And the Lord said, you need to tell John. Of course, you know John. He's held her, and she's thinking, oh, God healed it. Then the Lord said, Laura, it's now time to tell the women's ministry. What? <laughs> so she does that. Now it's time to go to the nations. And what the enemy meant for bad, that one event has become a harvest in the nations. God takes that, and resurrection is released again and again and again and again. And so this this template being foundational, it's not just a, oh, it's a foundation as in, it's way back there and that's what we base it. No, it's foundational now. This is how God operates. God takes and he'll allow death and if you are allowed to go through disappointment, the death of a promise, understand it's only so there can be a greater promise. You could preserve one little kernel, but God may wanna create an entire harvest out of your life and so he'll allow it to die, but there's a principle we live by. It's the principle of the resurrection. He's gonna multiply that and feed the nations through your life, amen? All right, let's stand, hallelujah. I didn't even have a clock back there and I only went a minute over. God is good. Hallelujah. Father, Lord, I'm asking God for a spirit of wisdom and revelation over what we talked about this morning. Lord, I know that this subject is too vast for us to understand, 
by one message. It's more than I understand. It's more than we understand through one hearing. Lord, we're asking for a spirit of wisdom and revelation and that you would give us your perspective, that we would understand this foundational principle of the kingdom. And Lord, that we would live from a resurrection perspective. Even when we grieve outside the tomb of a dead dream, Lord, that we would hold to that perspective that the kingdom of God is built on resurrection. Death cannot stand, whether physical or emotional or relational. Lord, your kingdom breaks in and begins to turn things around. Lord, help us to be those who live from that perspective and pose the kingdom on the very real suffering we live in in this world. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.